0: In a world where misinformation is killing thousands upon thousands of people, one technical communicator can rise above the rest.
1: It's Abby and Ben talking about tech comm again on TC Talk. We're wrapping up our conversation about vaccine communication. If you want some more context, you can go back and listen to parts one and two. Otherwise, enjoy. We had been talking about what works with vaccine communication. Yes. We've had a lot to say and not a lot of convenient, solid conclusions. Hmm if anyone had those convenient, solid conclusions, then we wouldn't be where we are today.
0: Probably true.
1: Mid-pandemic. Right. I thought we should wrap up our discussion by talking about what someone in the field of rhetoric and writing studies has to say about vaccine rhetoric. And so I read the book Vaccine Rhetorics by Heidi Lawrence. She's a professor at George Mason University The big argument in her book, I think, is that rhetoricians need to attend to audiences' responses to the material exigencies of vaccination.
0: That sounds very impressive. Um, Pretend that I'm a fifth grader and try saying that again.
1: It reminds me of in those science fiction books where there's the expert and there has to be a way to dumb down the science for the reader. And so there's always this other character who's like, say that in English. So you're basically that. Okay, so let's break this down. Okay. Exigence. This idea first became popularized in rhetorical theory by Lloyd Bitzer in... I want to say the 1960s in his article The Rhetorical Situation and Its Constituents. One constituent or in English part of the rhetorical situation for Bitzer is the exigence. It's the thing that prompts the rhetoric. Ah. He calls it an imperfection marked by urgency. So something's not right. Something needs to change. Right. And so communication can help to resolve that imperfection.
0: So give me an example.
1: Like, let's say somebody dies and that prompts somebody else to write an obituary. Ah. Or let's say there's some national tragedy and the president needs to address the nation.
0: So an exigence is like an event that cannot be ignored.
1: Yeah, you could put it that way. It may not be an event. Maybe it's a feeling. Another way to look at it is that rhetoric doesn't just emerge out of a vacuum. There's always a reason for rhetoric. So it essentially asks us to look at the why behind communication. So material refers to actual physical things out in the world versus just the discourse around them. Okay. Basically, that's acknowledging that... There are real tangible reasons that people either support or oppose vaccination. And we're not going to get anywhere if we overlook that fact and Hmm. stereotype the other side and characterize it all as, oh, they're just ignorant or, oh, those doctors are just being paternalistic. They think they know best or I think that ties in well with what we were talking about earlier in terms of don't treat the audience as one thing. Don't even treat the vaccine resistant as one thing. There's different reasons people came to those conclusions and therefore not all rhetoric will work with all of that group. Sure. What Lawrence says is that there's two ways to get people vaccinated. One is by compulsion. Okay. By law. You mandate it. You make it too hard for them not to get it. And the second way is through persuasion. Okay. And you I think, make
0: it their idea.
1: Yes, precisely. And I think that tension really exemplifies where we're at as a country right now. Mm-hmm. In that some people think some people are arguing, let's trust the public to make their own choices for themselves. And others are saying, too late for that. We need to compel it, essentially. And what Lawrence is saying is that there is still room for rhetoric. Compulsion, she argues, makes a situation a rhetorical or not rhetorical in hmm. that the exigence can no longer be modified, right? The situation, the decision it is made. It overrides
0: all the other exigencies.
1: Yeah, the decision is made. There's no more room for communication to affect the outcome. Hmm. And I think we're at a place as a country where we don't have time to persuade everybody to get the COVID vaccine. Or rather, we have tried persuasion and it hasn't really worked. And so time to turn to other tactics. But at the same time, I think it's a good reminder that whether or not we're mandating a vaccine, better for them to come into the situation tolerating it versus feeling as though they've been dragged in kicking and screaming.
0: Mm -hmm. But my freedoms.
1: Yeah. And honestly, I would love to hear more from her about her take on COVID vaccines and, and what academic insight she has to offer. So if we're going to approach the vaccination controversy rhetorically, She says, we need to account for the material exigencies of vaccines. And it'll make a lot more sense when I give a couple examples. So the first exigence she talks about is disease. For doctors, they are the ones who interface directly with disease. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I just used that corporate speak. Mm -hmm. Interface. They see what the disease actually does Mm -hmm. to human bodies. Right, And they see how that does not happen when people are vaccinated. And it also affects their day-to-day lives as medical professionals if they are having to treat a disease that they don't have the infrastructure to treat. Like I was talking yeah. about earlier with the, the little boy who came in with Hib. Right. And they didn't necessarily recognize it right away. So in other words... When doctors are making the plea to people to get vaccinated, they are holding an experience in their brains that we can't conceive of. Right. We haven't lived that. It's also what has made, I think, the, the COVID denial so troubling, especially for medical professionals. They're walking into work every day, um, you know. We have a family member who has worked closely with COVID patients, Mm -hmm. and he has... A number
0: of friends as well.
1: Yes. um, But this family member has worked in a context where he has not had sufficient PPE, Mm. and he is immunocompromised. Correct. So while his arguments in favor of vaccines probably run along the same lines as any well-educated science appreciating persons, he's got something different that is influencing his response.
0: Not only the experience, he's got, he has more skin in the game than most.
1: Right. That's going to be a sticking point, as long as we don't recognize this material exigence that physicians are up against. Hmm. By saying that COVID is not real.
0: I personally can't comprehend it.
1: And it's very dismissive of medical professionals' Very real experiences.
0: I saw recently that we have the U.S. has currently surpassed the per capita impact in terms of deaths that the uh, Spanish flu did in a hundred years. Not we the have flu gone, of
1: 1918?
0: Th- that one. That's what I mean. Oh. More people per capita have died of COVID. Yikes. That's a pretty good argument that we are dumber as a country than we were a hundred years ago.
1: You're kind of doing that stereotyping, aren't you?
0: Yeah. That, okay. You got me. That you we're got saying
1: me. is not going to... Again, do you want to be right? Or do you want to make a difference? And also be right?
2: <laughs>
1: Without the same ego boost that comes from destroying someone <laughs> in an argument.
0: Right. Um...
1: That's a rhetorical question.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But if you have an answer by all means.
0: Like there is an um, an immediate boost you get from destroying someone whereas making things different is a hard concept to even believe in nowadays.
1: Yeah. And that's why we need to give up on hoping making... for one mass solution.
0: Oh. Not making a difference? That's that's good. I'm glad that you weren't making going to s- say we should give up on making a difference. <laughs> So, it kind of sounds to me like climate change, where um, there is not ever going to be a silver bullet. There's a lot of things that need to be tried. You can't apply a solution in the jungle that you can in the desert. You can't apply...
1: Do you know what my favorite climate change solution is? Bringing back the woolly mammoth. Yes. Yes. Jurassic Park is my favorite movie, so I totally get that I should be like, "No, think of the unintended consequences." <laughs> but woolly mammoths are just freaking cool.
0: They're like teddy bears with tusks that are a lot bigger and, well, maybe a little frightening, but they eat plants, not animals, right. so Right.
1: It's not a velociraptor that we're reincarnating here. But <clears throat> we digress. Do we? Another example of a material exigence. One of them is the notion of injury. So vaccine injury. Have you ever heard that phrase?
0: Uh, Just a few seconds ago.
1: Okay. So it's a real thing. People can have more adverse experiences with vaccines other than just side effects.
0: I'm guessing from the word injury that it's more of a prolonged sort of Thing, then. I think that's the Soar idea. arm yeah yeah okay
1: there is actually a national vaccine injury database hmm. and the government will compensate folks who can meet a certain threshold of evidence for hmm. having received an injury due to a vaccine but as you can imagine there are also those situations where there's there's not that cause effect relationship between the vaccine and some kind of other condition
0: and i I imagine those people have had their their jobs cut out for them for a year and a half (laughs) dealing with claims of injury i don't know
1: i haven't heard of any actual vaccine like covid vaccine injury you know that's legit except for uh what's her name um
0: swollen balls
1: that yes the (laughs) why can't i remember her name a singer
0: Mm mm-hmm Whose cousin
1: was going to get married in...
0: Trinidad. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And of course, the internet was all over that because it's like, hmm, there might be another reason that this person has swollen balls other than having gotten the vaccine. But all that to say, disproving that someone has a vaccine vaccine injury isn't going to fix things. Hmm. It still doesn't address that imperfection marked by urgency it doesn't solve the problem of someone having experienced some kind of injury for whatever reason and they're trying to make sense of it and then another one is the exigence of the unknown and this was her chapter about talking to college students about the flu vaccine Hmm. and this was kind of eye-opening for me because some of the Vaccine-hesitant arguments made sense to me. And not that I am now going to not get a flu vaccine, but I am now better able to kind of step into their shoes in a way that's not just, they are experiencing a deficit of credible information. When it comes to the flu vaccine, as you know, it has hit-and-miss effectiveness against the flu.
0: Yep. Spray and pray.
1: (laughs) Did you just come up with that?
0: Uh... Not that specific phrase, but as applied to the flu, yes. All right. where it, flu vaccine. What's the
1: original context for spray and pray? Do I want to know?
0: Uh, it's probably a military thing. You know that the enemy is out there, spray and pray you hit them. I don't know.
1: Okay. So not only is there unknown benefit to getting the flu vaccine in any given year, but there's mm-hmm. also the unknown of what effect could this have down the road? That's a legitimate fear. I should say, from a scientific and statistical perspective, it's not a legitimate fear. But For approaching much. it from that perspective is not going to change the fear. It's also a fear that anyone could have, regardless of how much how pro-science they are.
0: Or informed.
1: Yeah. There's no such thing as a procedure that can be 100% guaranteed to be risk-free. So some people who are healthy might think, why would I trade in the certainty of my health right now for an unknown adverse reaction down the line? Hmm. And so that... I
0: know how I'm feeling now, but I don't know if this will benefit me at all, and I don't know if it'll hurt me.
1: Yes. And also, the flu is pretty commonplace. We've witnessed it enough that it doesn't seem so scary or that we are particularly vulnerable to it if we are healthy.
0: Even though it does kill thousands of people every year.
1: Right. But you can see how somebody would say, I'm a healthy college student. Why would I intentionally sicken myself, even just a tiny bit, with this vaccine when even if I were to get the flu, I'd probably come through it just fine. And that experience of recovering from the flu is much more familiar than whatever unknown consequences there might be for getting the flu vaccine.
0: Mm-hmm. Everyone who is alive and had the flu survived it. <laughs> Survivorship bias, right? Is that a thing? This is um, from World War II, probably Vietnam times as well, and, you know, all of the fun that we had in between. The... Air Force would every time one of their planes or helicopters took enemy fire, they would take and mark it out on a diagram of the plane. And that would get sent in to a central recording place where they would overlap, you know, thousands and thousands of incidents and they would see Big Data. Yeah, it would old school big data, you know, like on transparencies. <laughs> So from the, what you might think of as being a completely random where might a, bl- a bullet strike a plane, um, patterns would emerge, and there would be uh, more of the uh, markings where there had been a bullet hole on a plane that came back in places where it was not uh, a weak point. And there would be blank spots where... Any time a plane took a shot there, it would bring it down. So that they would use that in revising the planes and like, oh, we need to add more armor here. you know It's kind of uh, not very applicable, but
1: <laughs> at least you're honest. Fun. I was waiting for the connection.
0: It's a fun demonstration, well, fun in the way that everyone who got made one of those charts survived their encounter. Everyone who survived it knows that you can survive it. So, even if it was particularly harrowing, it's a known quantity, as opposed to... um, The planes
1: that just totally went up in flames and were irrecoverable? Exactly. Okay.
0: Everyone listening to this, I assume, recalls recovering from the flu because they survived, so... It doesn't seem so lethal.
1: Right. We can't we, we can't hear the stories of the people who have died of COVID or the flu. Right. Because they're dead. That's a very logical statement I've made just there.
0: Dead men tell no tales.
1: But I think that we are far enough into this pandemic that everyone knows somebody who has, if not died from it, then certainly gotten it. So it's not so novel. And when people have loved ones close to them die, you'd think that would be, I mean, it's a pretty extreme consequence. But look at it this way. Okay. So I was looking at some sample vaccine communication when I was getting ready for my writing about health and medicine class this summer. And I ran across something put out by Hennepin County Medical Center. Okay. And it was one of those facts versus myths about the covid vaccine sheets one of the statements on it said the vaccine is not made from aborted babies it is not the mark of the beast and it was just hilarious to me to see these absurd statements in this like
0: official communication exactly
1: exactly because i was like is this sat this isn't satire people really believe this it's easy to dismiss it, but at the same time, if you've grown up in a culture where you are taught that Satan is real and the mark of the beast is a real thing that will damn you for eternity, and like it's
0: coming, that is
1: worse than dying of COVID. Right, and <laughs> I mean it's the it's the most extreme example I can think of of the materiality of the unknown coming into play here. Like, we don't know that the vaccine is the mark of the beast, but it could be. And with enough conspiracy mongers shoving that idea at you and mm-hmm. people within your community believing it alongside you, I again, I can kind of...
0: It doesn't seem as crazy.
1: Yeah, I can kind of identify with that. That doesn't make it easy to respond to.
0: No. <laughs> I mean, how do you convince someone to take a gamble on their eternity.
1: You Um. might sell your soul to the devil in so doing, but just get in line. Dismissing it as ludicrous isn't going to get us anywhere. And what Lawrence would suggest, I think, is that we can't persuade someone until we modify the exigency. So another way to think of that would be acknowledge the problem, fix the problem. And she also suggests that by thinking of the exigencies people are responding to, we have insight into where persuasion is not likely to work. And
0: right. Like, like the one that you mentioned.
1: Oh Yeah. So, again, trying to bring this back to what works? What could we do? The thing that occurs to me in that particular scenario, people who have tied up religion and politics with this procedure, would be to... And this is, this is not unusual among technical communication, but uh, write with the community versus writing for the community. And so that would mean bring in some stakeholders, bring in some community members to talk to, gather insights, make a plan. Here's the challenge. If that's going to work, all parties need to be operating in good faith.
2: Hmm.
1: There's so much entrenchment but there might be ways to make inroads with people who are who are still considered trustworthy by a community but have a little bit more open of a mind and can model being open to getting vaccinated. And then Lawrence also suggests an, taking an open stance with people which is listening not to persuade but to understand at least first. So listen to the stories of parents who are alleging vaccine injuries. Listen mm. to the fears of people who think that the vaccine will have consequences for their mortal soul. Um, mm. And don't jump in there with that's ludicrous. That, that'd that be really hard to do though.
0: <laughs> yeah, it would. There would be a whole lot of uh, self-control that I wouldn't enjoy. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely see the the point that calling someone stupid is...
1: Uh, is... <laughs> right, with with the shaming strategy. Mm-hmm. I actually had a little bit of a Twitter exchange about this not too long ago. Um, shout out to Mike Trice. But he was talking about how, at least in the public health efforts to curb smoking, shame and fear were used pretty successfully. There are all these people who are calling for more empathy for the anti-vaxxers and the particular article in question we were talking about was somebody essentially saying i had a conversation with somebody and they didn't change their mind but i feel good about it so the question is what role can interpersonal conversations have versus campaigns of shaming and i think there can be a place for both as a rhetorician I recognize that not every response will make sense for every audience.
0: That whole idea of, I had a conversation with someone, and they didn't change their mind, but I feel good about it. Well, sure, people don't have instantaneous, dramatic swings in their beliefs, and there's something to be said about that, uh, you know, those conversations that get into someone's brain and
1: for and sure, root
0: around and dig and it's dig like, up the garbage.
1: It's like uh, incremental persuasion. Mm-hmm. It's not all, It's not going to happen all at once, and so those conversations might play a part in helping someone to change their mind. And that's that's what I've been telling my students this summer too in the class where it's all too easy to feel very discouraged and to say, "You're not going to make the one piece of communication that's going to." Solve this problem, but it can be one piece of a larger accumulation of information for somebody that could tip them over the edge. I can also see there being almost a backfire if someone's getting overwhelmed with information too, Mm -hmm. like spammed or. (laughs) Speaking of spam, no, we'll save. No, that's completely irrelevant.
0: Yes. in this case, spam is a red herring, which it is not actually a red herring. It could be. Who knows? Oh, dear.
1: No, I was going to talk about the uh, deep fried spam experience. Yes. That was ill-conceived by Deep fried on spam
0: on a stick like a corn dog.
1: Never again. It, it seemed better, like the yeah. thing to do at the time, but I've learned my lesson. And all that to say... People can change. And I know that I have changed my mind about pretty major things in my lifetime. And Mm
2: -hmm. it is
1: a process. And part of it has to do with individual conversations that spark thoughts. And another part of it has to do with being afraid of what people will think of me if I believe certain things. Yep. (laughs) And not wanting to look like an idiot.
0: That's true. Shame works.
1: If it comes from people whose opinion I care about. But that's true. Anti-vaxxers, like the heavy conspiracists, they don't give a rip what academics think. Speaking of conspiracy, that is one of the hardest things to know how to respond to because it's always about more than just the conspiracy. It's almost it's a culture, it's a community, it's a set of values.
0: It almost it almost gets down to the point of identity.
1: Totally. When you're dealing in those realms, facts and reasoning aren't going to make a dent. One possible approach could be getting at their exigence. What's in it for them? What are they getting out of adhering to a particular conspiracy theory? I mean, realistically, it's probably not going to be the evidence is so rational and compelling.
2: <laughs> I mean...
1: It is by some standards of what counts as evidence, but mm-hmm. those standards are not shared
0: <laughs> right.
1: by many. But it is about certain conspiracies tapping into some larger fears. Mm-hmm.
0: Emotion, identity. Yep. Any of those things that are beyond
1: Reason. typical
0: contemplation.
1: Yeah. You know, and this is... is
0: who I am. If you're saying that who I am is wrong, then F you. Yes. We are done.
1: And I want to. Be clear here. I'm not saying emotion is bad. I'm not saying identity is bad, and that community doesn't matter. Even, right. even people who are as pro-science as you can get, they are as susceptible to emotion as anyone else, and in fact, they often turn their emotion on the people that they are accusing of being too emotional, mm-hmm. because they get mad, right?
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: people get mad at people who don't see reason.
0: Certainly, yeah. If if you view yourself as like a Vulcan, then when people don't respond to your rational thought the way that you think that they should, then you know yelling at them is the rational thing to do, or you know you view it as the rational thing to do rather than your emotional response to
1: you justify their it reaction. on a rational basis when that's just a pretext for exactly yeah. Once we know what someone's getting out of a conspiracy theory, and I was talking about this earlier, but is there a way to meet that need in a safer way? I ran across an article in Wired that was talking about how debunking infer- misinformation doesn't especially work. Right. But prebunking, <laughs> in other words, kind of getting ahead of the misinformation, can have some positive effect.
0: If you can see it coming...
1: Right. So predicting conspiracy theories. Another benefit, I think, of conspiratorial thinking is the ego boost of, I know the truth.
0: Secret knowledge. Everyone
1: else out there is duped. And we need to fight against this shadowy presence of evil in our government or whatever. What if we can shift that so that they are still part of a narrative where they are uncovering truth? But instead, it's It's
0: actual truth.
1: It's seeing the origin of the conspiracy theories, tracing them all the way back and understanding what did they get out of it. What is Alex Jones getting out of pushing his theories?
0: Well, money.
1: (laughs) Often it's money, but it may not always be money. So. A conspiracy within a conspiracy, kind of, or a meta-conspiracy. I don't know. But it's it's just kind of turning that...
0: A conspiracy wrapped in an enigma, bounded by a conundrum.
1: Smothered in secret sauce. Mmm. Maybe this is too naive of me, because some people are TFG, you know, as we talked about, too far gone. Mm-hmm. But there might be other people who aren't sucked in too far, and we can turn their, their hobby of research towards something more productive. And in fact, this article had a link to a few specific scholarly efforts at pre-bunking misinformation. And one of them was actually led to a game, like a little video game, where you're trying to go viral by posting COVID misinformation. As you're trying to make the most outrageous post, it's kind of training you to identify okay, when you see this strategy used, that's a sign someone's looking for clicks, like emotion mm. or the invented expert or whatever. That, I think, holds some promise, and I think that they did find that it can be protective to some extent. I mean, it certainly wasn't overwhelming, but I think that that's a strategy worth pursuing.
0: Hmm. I imagine that all of the people playing this game were... Um... Like, not skeptics. Or am I wrong about that?
1: I don't know. It was, it was designed for college students, I think. Hmm. It reminds me kind of of an activity that I had students do in my rhetorical theory class when I was teaching about fake news and misinformation. I didn't feel right having them actually write fake news, but I hmm. did say write a clickbait, uh, clickbait, clickbait headline. So we read a little bit about what makes for the clickbaitiest clickbait and then use that in constructing your own headlines. And so the idea there is by doing it yourself, you can better recognize what tools other clickbait writers are using specifically to go viral or get clicks Hmm. apart from any actual so conformity to reality,
0: it seems like the uh, the idea here is it takes one to know one or being one helps, you know, one
1: or even full of hot air person. Even just seeing that, oh, it's not that hard. You don't want to give people these tools so that they can then get rich off of misinformation. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a risk. But I think the bigger risk is people being ignorant to how it works behind the scenes. And the last thing I would suggest, it's not a rhetorical solution, but it acknowledges materiality in that if you want people to get a vaccine, make it really easy for them to get a vaccine. Have the infrastructure to give people free, convenient vaccines, and you will mm-hmm. have taken care of a big segment of the hesitant population. Or not even that they're hesitant, they're just, they are just don't fully see the value or... You know, the inconvenience is outweighing the the need for them.
0: Yep. Removing a barrier.
1: Yeah. And so it needs to be a combination of materially making it accessible Mm -hmm. and at the level of the government, like CDC, and at the level of academia, people publishing studies Mm -hmm. with results about vaccine clinical trials. That communication needs to be transparent and detailed, but it shouldn't leave it at that. So don't hide information, but recognize that you know doing a data dump without any context for your audience is also not good enough. So thinking back to the Kolejewski article I was talking about earlier, The public is going to read science differently than scientists are going to read science. Right. So that's where technical communicators can come in. They can be that mediator. They can do the work of talking with these different audiences and helping to create messages that, oh, come on, there's got to be, let me have some hope here. Let me feel like my profession can make something of a difference.
0: Okay. Okay. You matter. You can make a difference, Technical Communicator.
1: Change the world.
0: In a world where misinformation is killing thousands upon thousands of people, one Technical Communicator can rise above the rest.
1: What would the name of that movie be?
0: The Communicator.
1: The Communicator.
0: da <laughs> da dun da dun da da dun da
1: Let's just plagiarize the term No, you have to learn
0: science. <laughs> it is science. Get to the vaccine clinic. Quick. You don't want to die. Communicator's log. Stardate 531.7. The planet Earth is a strange and confusing place where many of the resident species claim not to believe science. We realized how dire the situation was. Commander Data and I will begin to disseminate vaccines to the population.
1: Can I recommend that you bring Counselor Troy on your mission? Because we need not just Data, but empathy.
0: Ooh. I've deemed that it is appropriate to bring Commander Troy along on our voyage. Engage.